Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's open them up uh, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I think we're going to make it into, uh, no, we're not going to make it into chapter 6 today. Um, But we'll start with this, as you're turning to Luke chapter 5, every Easter, um, hey, you guys are welcome to go, all right. See, when they're here, nobody looks at me, and I don't like that at all. And so, um, so, so every Easter, uh, I guess around every Easter, we Christians uh, celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and as surely as we do this, uh, there are television stations which will broadcast uh, these special programs about Jesus. And, and, you know, it'll start with like, who is Jesus, right? <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or. Or was Jesus actually the person most Christians believe him to be? You know, tune in at 9 o'clock to find out. And, uh, and, and the speculation, uh, really, uh, what they'll say is, was he who he was or who he is or, or, or was he something else? And, and the speculation doesn't end with questions about Jesus' identity, that, that they continue with questions about um, the people who follow Jesus, and, and what does it truly mean to follow him, and, and I think that to some degree is important because how you follow Jesus depends on what you think about him, and, and so typically what happens is, is you'll sit in like an hour-long uh, episode uh, where there's just a lot of conjecture, and, and there's a lot of rival, rival interpretations to these questions, and, and some shows will kind of do a better job than others on on reporting various points of view, uh, but but one of the problems that I, I tend to anytime I watch a show like this is is that every opinion or every thought is uh, given the same treatment, and so so none of them are dismissed as improbable. In fact, some of them end up being uh, somewhat privileged, and and I think uh, an issue another issue is usually the privilege uh, points of view have very little to do with the Bible, the Jesus. That we find in the Bible. And, and so if we want to know Jesus, we must consider him, and we talk about this a lot around here, we must consider him as he is revealed uh, in the Gospels and in the Bible. As, as the Bible speaks to him, that's how we establish our understanding of, of who he is. We, do, we don't want to know Jesus as scholars know him or as television producers uh, present him. As we, as we look into the Bible, we, we will discover a very clear understanding of who Jesus is, and, and, and this profoundly affects how we worship him. Uh, we, we've paid special attention these past couple weeks that uh, as Jesus does these certain things, as, as we've walked and we've seen him uh, heal, and we've seen him teach, and we've seen him exercise demons, that, that he doesn't come as just one of those things, that, that he's the accumulation, and actually he's something much, he's someone much greater and grander than any of those specific things, and, and so, so we want to pay very careful attention uh, that as we look into the Bible, we discover that a clear understanding of who Jesus is profoundly affects how we worship him, how we come to him. And, and, and I mention this because of how frequently this is put on display as, as we walk with Jesus and, and, and really how we note his interactions with the church people. Um, in fact, two, two major sets of characters are typically revealed when it comes to the church folk uh, and, and his interactions with them. And 
uh, and we've we've been introduced to them already. But uh, but these two parties are uh, typically involve conversations with with Pharisees and and scribes, and and, and so th- these two parties in ancient Judaism were significant because they helped shape the worship of ancient Israel. Uh, and so, so the Pharisees were considered uh, the Bible guys. Uh, they would be uh, like ancient fundamentalists. Uh, they knew the Word of God. They believed in miracles. They were very strict in their observance of biblical rules. In fact, a lot of us would, would aspire to be like, man, one day maybe I'll be spiritual like them. Okay? So they would have been held in regard except for this major issue and the fact that they don't really love God, they love themselves. And, and then uh, they know they don't see Jesus for who he is. And, and so they're, they're strict in their observance of these biblical rules. In fact, uh, they, they love the law. They love the rules of God. And then you have the scribes who were teachers of the law. Uh, and, and they explained God's word to God's people. And, and now typically these men are found in very close proximity uh, together when we're in the Bible, especially when they're following uh, in investigating Jesus. And, and I think this kind of lends to the question of uh, why would God see fit to mention these, these guys so often and so, so frequently in, in the Gospels? And, and in fact, they take up a lot of real estate uh, in just four books of the Bible, and really, I guess, five, because you still see them uh, largely in the book of Acts. And and I think one answer is tends to be pretty obvious uh, that, that their opposition to Jesus serves as this avenue for Jesus' path to the cross. And, and I think it's, it's strange to, to think of the antagonist of the story of Jesus uh, being the church, but in part, that's, that's what we find. Uh, and then, uh, which, which to me, when we find Jesus praying for those, uh, for praying for the forgiveness of those, uh, who put him on the cross? It's it's remarkable, um, and and so, but by and large, their actions will lead to the crucifixion of of Jesus. And but uh, but I also think there's a second reason uh, the scribes and, and the Pharisees are uh, so often mentioned in in the Gospels. Uh, and and now uh, some of you might be like, what? Not me. But I, I tend to believe I don't have to walk very far when I look at the Pharisees to find myself in them. Um, in fact, I believe it's possible that the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they serve as, as a reflection of our hearts, but m- possibly more than that, a warning to our hearts uh, about, hey, when you see this, don't do this. And uh, at least the, there's a te- I think there's a temptation to become, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's a temptation to become uh, very much like a Pharisee in that that temptation, I think, is common to many believers. And, and so, so that temptation first manifests itself uh, in, in wrong thoughts about who Jesus is and, and then how we follow him into those steps. And, and so this morning, what I was hoping we would do is make it through three scenes uh, and that would span from chapter 5, 33 through uh, 6, 1, uh, 6, 11, uh, but that, that's clearly not going to work. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because I got eight pages deep into notes, and I hadn't even sniffed the second scene. All right? Uh, and so, unless you all want to be here for the next two and a half hours, um, which n- nobody? No, okay, whatever, jerks. Um, but, but 
But I, I want us to slow down, and I just want to explore this one thing. We might, we might get to the other two next week. Um, but, but my danger, I feel like, in trying to cover all three is, is, is each scene is going to share something that Jesus wants us to see uh, and, and how the Bible is intended to help us see him more clearly. And my fear is that, is that if we drive past like 80 miles per hour, it'll cause us to see Jesus in a blur. Uh, and so, so we're already taking our time through this gospel of Luke, so we might as well take a couple more weeks, right? Um, and so, so we're going to stick to this one scene this morning. And, uh, and, and so, but, and I think the focus on what Jesus says about himself, uh, when asked a question and, uh, is, is going to be important. And then we're going to explore also, uh, what I think is going on in the hearts of the Pharisees and, and the scribes. And, and ultimately what's going to surface is, is a question about the nature of, of Christian worship. Uh, and so, so that, that's what we're going to see. Let's, let's stop and let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you move us and that you move in us and you move around us. And we pray over these next few moments that through the power of your Holy Spirit that, that he would speak and he would, he would make things more clear to us about who Jesus is and then secondly how that affects our lives. So Father, we give you these, these moments and we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. All right. I say we, uh, let's pick up in the same place we left last week. Okay? So, so Jesus has just called Levi to follow him. And it says that Le- Levi did what he could do, right? He's, he pushed his chair back. He stood up. And he started to follow Jesus. And, and where they go next is to Levi's house where, where Levi honors Jesus with a, um, with a celebration and a feast. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees... Uh, object to Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and, and sinners. Uh, and we noted how interesting that dynamic is. Uh, that what we find is that Jesus is willing to go into the mess, into the dark places. And so what does it say about a church if they're unwilling to go to the places that Jesus was willing to go to? And so, so, so this is where Jesus will respond to their objection in verse 31, and he will, he will clarify his mission for them. He'll say, he'll say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so he says, he says, I've not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we said, that's, that's an incredibly bold statement to make. Because what does he do? He calls sinners sinners, right? And then he says, I still want to be with you in this. I want to call you to repentance because your best life, your healthiest life, your most joyful life is with me. And so, so we noted how at the root of the Pharisees' objection was this view of holiness that, that really exposes self-righteousness uh, in, in that they viewed their holiness higher than the sinfulness of the tax collectors, and so, so they just avoided them. And they, they chastised them. And, and what Jesus reveals is, is how the mission of his life comes to rescue those who are trapped in sin. Uh, and ironically enough, at this point, including these Pharisees and these scribes who have such objection to who Jesus is. And so, so let's go uh, chapter 33. We'll just read it. We'll read the scene, and then we'll kind of come back and unpack it. So, so, and they said to him, so the Pharisees and the scribes say to Jesus, okay, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, okay? But yours eat and drink. 
And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast in those days. And then verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And, one, uh, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, the skins will be destroyed. But, but new wine, this is what he says, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Uh, and this is kind of a, kind of like a jab uh, to, to the Pharisees, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So, so there's a lot to unpack here, uh, and we don't have a lot of time to do it. But, but I think the question that kind of comes to the surface about Christian worship in these, in, in these verses is, is that when it comes to following Jesus, should we fast and pray, or should we eat and drink? So which is it? You know, do we fast and pray, or do we feast, uh, and do we drink? And, and what we're going to find is that the answer is both. The answer is both, is that, that the conversation at dinner, as the dinner party continues, the scribes and the Pharisees challenge Jesus, and they say, hey, you know John the Baptist, you know you know that guy. Uh, he's, he's fairly significant in this story at this point. Um, it says John's disciples, they fast and they pray, and, uh, and then, and then the, our disciples, we make sure they're doing the same thing, but, but yours aren't doing that. In fact, they're doing the opposite of that. They're eating and they're drinking and they're feasting and, and they're celebrating. And, and the issue here is that, that they continue to think that Jesus' attendance at a dinner party scandalizes their religion. That's their issue. Like, we don't want to be around these people. And the fact that he is is causing an issue. Their, their comment assumes that, that abstaining from eating and drinking is better than partaking. And, and the comment illustrates that the scribes and the Pharisees are really religious ascetics. That, that, that they're people who believe you must avoid all forms of, of pleasure or indulgence as an act of self-discipline for, for religious purposes. And, and so the ascetic believes that abstaining makes you godlier and that it pleases God more. And they think that the severe treatment of the body and avoiding those pleasures lead to a, a higher level of, of holiness. And, and so in that way, uh, the Pharisees also seem to just assume that, that religion is not about joy. That religion is not about joy. They're suspicious, very suspicious of joy. And that, that, that religion is not supposed to make you happy. And happiness in their mind gets in the way of, of religious devotion. And, and so the question is, okay, where do they kind of get this basis uh, and it's, it's simply because they rest their argument on the authority of their own example uh, and their own tradition. And, and they contend uh, that the disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, fast and pray, so why don't your disciples do that? And, and their comment and their way of thinking are really just this ends of, of self-righteousness. Uh, they, they wanted to be able to walk into heaven and say, God, you're welcome, but I'm here. And... And they cite their claim on their own authority, and so, so they generalize from their example to everyone else. And, and so, so I think I've given you a blank here that you can fill in. If you're wondering, hey, how can I avoid 
being a, a self-righteous religious Pharisee, one of the steps is that you don't use your personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. Okay? And so, so the Pharisees, they've created a religion with hundreds, if not thousands, of additional steps towards holiness. Uh, like these guardrails. They said, okay, we want to avoid um, being electrocuted. And so putting a sign on the, uh, the box that's going to electrocute you isn't enough. We're going to build this fence. And so then they're like, oh, I'm afraid we're going to, if somebody might climb over this fence. And so they put up another fence and another fence and another fence. And before too long, what they've done is they've removed completely the heart of God out of the equation. And very easily, very easily, anytime you do that, what happens is, is they no longer live to please God. They live to, to, in a manner of living where they say, God, you can't be mad at me. And if you can't be mad at me, then you can't punish me. And if you can't punish me, then I can do whatever I want. So it's not about the heart of the Father. It's about forcing his hand into accepting them. And, and then they take that and they multiply it out. They do that with everybody. And they say, you can't be accepted unless you're accepted on our terms. And, and this is one of the things that we see Jesus come in frequently in the Gospels. He says, I'm going to explain to you the heart of the Father. That yes, he's serious about sin, but he's so loving about forgiveness. So they, they, they add these additional guardrails, and quickly that, that became the focus. Not our response to the love of God, but how we can make sure God cannot be mad at them. And they contend that Jesus' disciples should look more like their disciples, which really what they're, they're wanting to do is, is they want Jesus to look more like them so when other people see that there's not a rival religious practice that stands in this different posture uh, to their controlling and lead over uh, controlling lead they have over people and and so so the question is what does jesus think about this right and this is what we get we get and starting in verse 34 we get a response uh and and we're going to see two responses here the first response uh in verses 34 and 35 is that faith in jesus is about joy faith in jesus is about joy and some of you are like i don't know if that's true sit tight we're going to see it so, so our Lord uses this, this wedding analogy. And uh, if you're looking for some Bible dork today, I'm going to give you some. Uh, so, so ancient Jewish weddings have basically three phases to them. Uh, the first phase was, was the contract. It's when the parents of the bride and the groom agree that their children would marry and, and the bride price was given to the father of the bride. And, and, and essentially that contract, according uh, to Jewish law, effectively began... A marriage, though the couple did not yet live together as, as husband and wife, and and so uh, that would that would begin the second phase, and, and the second phase came really as this indefinite period of time when the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a place for himself and and his bride. Okay, so so one of the ways that we can understand the return of Jesus is very much in regards to the way uh, ancient Israel did. Um, their their marriages. Uh, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, uh, that we as the bride of Christ are to sit and to wait his eager, uh, with, a, with eager anticipation his return. Uh, because what would happen is, um, 
that the bride would wait for the return of her groom uh, and he would ready herself for marriage and, and that could take place at, at really any time. And so, so not until everything was ready and her father had given permission could the groom kind of return uh, and the actual celebration would, would take place. And so the wedding celebration marked this third phase and, and it's often, uh, it was often a, a seven-day period full of dancing and music and food and drink. So the next time uh, you're stuck going to your spouse's friend's wedding and it's only two hours, just you got lucky, all right? Um, And so this would be a seven-day period. And then finally the celebration came, after the celebration came the consummation and then husbands and wives began to live together in marriage. And and this is where we get our our modern way, uh, not our modern way, but a biblical way of doing marriage. And so, so, so with this metaphor in, in verse 34, uh, the Lord seems to be referring to, to the celebration. He says, he says, hey, the groom's at the, at the wedding. So why would my disciples need to fast? In fact, he says, you know, that the bridegroom's coming was this time of joy and indulgence, not, not gloom and denial. Like, like none of us want to go to a reception, right? Because the reception is really just a thank you for going to the wedding for the most part, right? But nobody wants to go and be the groom be like, hey guys, I know I'm here, um, but we're going to fast tonight. And so I know, I know we have cake over there, but no, we're not going to eat it. Um, and so, so he says, he says, why would you do that? Because this is a time of celebration. This is a time of rejoicing and it's a time of, of thanksgiving. And so it is with, with his disciples. They, they are the guests at the wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one that they've been waiting for. And here he, he's here to gather his, his bride. And this is a cause for, for rejoicing. Now this is, this they don't get this. The Pharisees and the scribes, they don't, they don't get this because they don't see Jesus for who he is. And what Jesus says to those who have ears to hear is that, is that following him, is, it's about joy. Now, it's not, I've got to be careful here, because there's joy that sustains and then there's happiness that can be fleeting. And too often in the Christian life, we think of happiness as being the supreme uh, pursuit of, of following Jesus. And, and that's not altogether, because, because there, is, there is suffering. There are painful seasons. Uh, but the joy of the Lord brings us strength. And so, so what we have is, is Jesus saying, following me is about joy. It's, it's about delight. It's about gladness. It's about feasting. It's about this great sumptuous meal that the Savior spreads before us to discover who Jesus is and to receive him as Lord and Savior is to find your greatest joy. It's what it is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus will use a parable to describe the kingdom of heaven. And he says, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's buried in a field that, that a man finds and, and reburies it. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys that field. And, and so, so the kingdom that Jesus brings is so overwhelmingly wonderful that the, with joy, we give up everything else in order to have this one treasure. And some of us say, that's so extreme. That's crazy talk. But how we view Jesus shapes how we worship Jesus. And the Bible presents Jesus as the greatest treasure of our lives. And so, so Christians are those who have 
should be those who have discovered the fountain of joy that's in Jesus. That's, that's, that's when we're with him, we celebrate. And, and so, so we, we say the answer to this question about fasting or feasting it is both because what Jesus says in verse 35 foreshadows the cross He's in his ascension and, and reveals how his disciples will, will find seasons of their lives where they fast. Because the bridegroom won't physically be with them. He will go to prepare a place for them. And, and so, so then we, we talk about how, how fasting is this very appropriate part of our Christian life because it, it draws us, its intention is to draw us more intently to the movement and the voice of God in our lives. Not, not in an effort to force God's hand or, or to prove how devout we are in our self-righteousness. And so, so we fast in this season of our lives uh, because our hearts need this, this laser-like focus towards celebrating what's available to us in the Gospels. And so, so as, we, as we feast, anytime we experience the presence of Jesus, uh, because He is our greatest treasure, and He only brings lasting joy, regardless of the circumstance. Okay? So, so we, don't, we don't fall apart beyond repair, now, there might be seasons where we lie on the floor and bleed a while. But in Jesus, we're picked back up. Because the purpose of our lives is about so much more than just you and just me. So, so secondly, Jesus replies in verse 36 through 39. And what he essentially says is that, that faith in Jesus begins something new. It begins a new covenant. And so, so the Lord compares this situation to, to a new garment and, and new wine. And, uh, and with the second parable, he teaches uh, that, that the new era has arrived. Now, now, we're living in the era. They're experiencing it in real time. And so maybe, maybe just maybe we can give, cut them a little bit of slack um, because it's, it's hard to see things um, in the urgency of our own lives. Uh, and so, so there's this significant change. This is what Jesus is saying. There's a significant change in the administration of God's saving purposes of the world. And if we pay attention to the Old Testament, we see that this isn't anything new, that this is just the fulfillment of these promises of God from old until right now in this moment. And so, so he uses this illustration. He says, imagine that you go and, and you buy a new shirt. And, uh, and, and, and as you buy that new shirt, you get home, and then all of a sudden you cut off a portion of that shirt, and you have this old ratty shirt from college that has a hole in it, and you, you stitch that, that new piece onto the old piece, and you're like, nobody does that. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because even at the very best, it's, it's still not going to match. Uh, the colors won't match, and then, and then eventually it starts to tear. And, uh, and he, says, he says, no one does that. He says, even if you did, uh, it, it doesn't look right. No one, and then he says, likewise, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Uh, and it says the, the new wine will burst the old wineskin because uh, the old wineskin has uh, this ferment in it and, and it starts to mess with the leather. Um, not that I knew that. I learned that this week. It's why I share it with you. Um, but he says no one puts new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will burst the old wineskins. And, and the result is that it wastes the skin and then it spills the wine. And, and at the end of the day, everything's ruined. And so, 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 so new wine and old wine are not compatible. New wine, old wineskins are not compatible. Uh, also, if, if, you, if you have a taste for the old, he says, you, you won't be open to the new. 
Uh, and I think this is it's an ironic kind of jab at the, at the Pharisees. It's like you guys have, have grown so accustomed um, to this old way that you, you, you don't have any appetite or any willingness to taste the new. And the problem with this is that C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, uh, it says it's, it's like being willing to settle, uh, to, to, to have a vacation in your backyard when God is offering you uh, a vacation at sea. Uh, we, we, we learned it this way. It's, it's being willing to eat mud pies for the rest of your life uh, when, when God is offering you a fajitas. Uh, like nobody says, I want a mud pie over a fajita, right? Uh, and if you do, you're a liar, okay? Um, and so, so this is what he says. He says, you guys have grown so accustomed to this old way that, that the, the idea of new wine, which is the better wine, you have no willingness to take it. And so, so what he's saying is, is he's ushering in, what he is ushering in with his presence is new and it far surpasses the old. And so, so the old garment and old wineskins, what they do, they, they, they represent this old worship of Israel. It's the old covenant. And so, so their view of fasting and their view of, of approaching God were part of this old way. And, and what Jesus ushers in, in a new covenant, um, which is about to be offered you know, a couple chapters later, uh, about to be offered in the blood and the body of Jesus, that's the new wine. That's, that's the new cloth. And, and the old and the new don't really mix or match. That's all he's explaining to him. It's like, you guys know this, but I need you to understand this. You can't pour Christ into old wine, into the old wineskins of the Mosaic Law. That, that his presence bursts those skins and everything is lost. In fact, you can go uh, spend some time this week in Galatians chapter 5. In like the first six or seven verses, um, it kind of explains that. That if, if you've been worshiping God in some old man-made way, then the newness of the kingdom cannot be held in your wineskin. And so, and now, I, I should say this. I don't want us to be confused about Jesus' role in the law. Um, because Jesus doesn't stand opposed to the old covenant. He doesn't stand opposed to the, to the law that God made. Uh, because what we find is that the law was a placeholder. And you say, well, where do you find that? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 21. I'm just going to read it to you. Is the law then, talking about the role of Jesus, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Great question, right? Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, this is what happens as we talk about the Pharisees and the world they're living in, as we talk about the law of God, uh, but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came okay so important man we're gonna we're gonna get to galatians one day uh and it's gonna be great we might spend seven or eight years in it for all i know um so then the law was this guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian no longer for in christ jesus you are all sons of god through and this is the offer, this is what Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees. 
that I'm ushering in new. Jesus doesn't stand in opposition to the law of God. He's confronting ultimately the law of man here, uh, which was taking the law of God, skewing it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. In fact, Jesus will say in, in Matthew chapter 5, he'll say, says, he'll say very clearly, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, no, don't. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's good news for you and me, because we need to be able to fulfill the law. Because the law reveals holiness. And what God deserves and what God requires is holy living out of his people. And so, so the beauty of the gospel says that Jesus takes our place. The holiness of Jesus is transferred into our view, how God views our holiness. Which is why we have such great cause for celebration when we're in the presence of Jesus. So he says, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay? It's fine. We, we can start wrapping this up. Um, so, so, so here's what I need you to hear. We, we cannot have the gospel with just a little touch of the law and legalism. You can't do it. Uh, we, we can't have the law with just a few ounces of Jesus poured into it. So, so the gospel is an entirely different garment. It's a complete garment in itself. And so, so the gospel requires fresh wineskins of the New Testament Christianity for, because it brings fresh wine. And so, so those who, who drink the old religion, which is exposed ultimately in, in self-righteousness, um, will, will not enjoy the new wine of the gospel. There, there's something about legalism and, and self-righteousness that is natural to us. Uh, Martin Luther will say that man's default position is religion. Uh, and he does so because he says, he says religion re- exposes order. And ultimately that's, that's what we want. We, we want order because it removes the chaos. And he says you've got to be guarded against that because the gospel is speaking about fulfillment. So we're, we're tempted to, to cling to the old and reject the new that's, that's altogether different. And so, so perhaps you've been thinking about God and you've been thinking about how, how to worship Him. And perhaps, mm, 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 alright, um, did Nick just call you? Is that, he's like, he's like, hey, I'm not at church today, and you're like, yeah, I know, and, all right, here we go. So, so, so perhaps you've been saying, okay, how, how does God wish for me to approach him? Like, like, what kind of rules does he require from me, and... And if that's, if that's you, it's... The text screams out to you, almost as a plead. Like, like don't develop rules that lead to self-righteousness. Don't do it. Don't develop a mentality that because I am so religious, I'm better than others. And, but more than that, because I'm so religious, I'm such a value to God. Because He doesn't need us. He doesn't. But out of His love for us, He says, I, I choose you. And I send my son to rescue you so that you can have joy. 
so that you can have peace. And, and so, so we don't develop these rules that lead to self-righteousness. And, and ultimately, because you cannot earn your way to God's favor. You cannot pay, pray enough, fast enough, do enough religious things to satisfy God's righteousness. Because the righteousness only comes through Jesus. Our right standing doesn't come through our actions, but through our faith. So, so we don't hang on to self-righteousness. Even, even our best deeds uh, ha- have enough sin mixed with them that condemn us before a perfectly holy God. And so, so our righteousness can't be trusted. Our self-righteousness cannot be trusted because our righteousness admits too many weaknesses and too many imperfections. It will never be sturdy enough to build a ladder to heaven. So, so we, we must repent before God that, that we must abandon our righteousness so that we can receive the righteousness of, of another. And this is, this is why I love Jesus so much because he is, he is my righteousness. He makes my standing before God right. That he obeys God perfectly where we failed. That in obedience to the law, in order to satisfy the law, Christ gives himself as a sacrifice for us to pay the penalty of our sins. That, that in that penalty payment and through the righteousness of Christ, sinners, you and me, are reconciled to God and opened up to the incredible, immeasurable riches of being his kids. So, so through faith in Jesus, that we begin to follow Jesus in a way that God would recognize as worship. And so we're careful. We said this last week. We have to be careful that we don't hold an outside unbelieving world in condemnation. But at the same time, we do hold each other accountable. Because of who Jesus is. And I think, I think it's easy. It's easy to, to slide over to the authority of our own example while, while thinking about that authority should be expressed in everybody else's life. And, so, and when we do that, we become Pharisees. And, and so, so here's where we go. And I think this is what Jesus is just saying in this scene. He says, he says look to me. He says, look at my disciples and see them celebrate. And they celebrate because I am worthy of celebration. He says, he says, look to me because I am joy. I am your joy. I am, I, I have, I am ushering, I have ushered for us. I have ushered in this new covenant. And we're in this season of an eager anticipation for his return. Like spend some time, and don't be afraid of it. But spend some time in the book of Revelation and see how he ends it triumphantly. That he doesn't come as, as a hippie Jesus. He doesn't come as, as, as a flowery Jesus, a Jesus desperate for, for popularity contest. You know, he, he comes in with a sword on his thigh. And he says this ending will be decisive. And he does so because of who he is, what he has done. And so we get a look and we get a walk in the wake of his movement. And we tell the world, I'm with him. And like when we understand, when we see 
I'm, I'm about to go, I promise. But when we see Jesus clearly, we long for people to know that we're with him. We do. And we don't begrudgingly be like, ah, yeah, I guess I'm, we're related. But you walk in his wake and you say, he's, he's, I found it. He is everything my heart longs for. He is the fulfillment of every desire. Everything else apart from him is, is it's an empty well or it's a bitter, it's bitter waters. So Jesus comes in, he looks at the Pharisees, and he gives them an invitation. I love this, because he doesn't condemn them. He just clarifies the fact that, hey, you're not seeing me correctly. And he says, when you see me correctly, there's joy in that. When you see me correctly, you will understand that the old and the new don't mix. And so we can talk about it. We are going to leave here in a minute. But we can go back into what Paul says in our old self and our new self. He says your old self doesn't mix with the new self because the new self has been completely restored. New heart, new mission, new reason for breathing. So this is King Jesus. As the Bible presents him. So our question is simply this. Is he your lasting joy or not? If he's not your lasting joy, then it doesn't matter what VBS you went to when you walked down and prayed a prayer. It doesn't matter what summer camp you went to. It doesn't matter what church service, how many church services you've gone to. If he's not your lasting joy, then you don't see Jesus clearly. If you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, then then there's then there is not an avenue for peace. There isn't. I don't, I don't say that to guilt you. I say that because there was a time in my life when that was me. And so today I plead with you that you would for the first time see Jesus as your lasting joy. Because that's what he deserves. He deserves to be honored and worshipped in such a way. So the way you can respond to that is really just, it's pretty simple. You can take him up on his invitation just to follow him. We said this last week that, that before Jesus asked Matthew to believe in him, he just said, follow me. So you bring your questions and you bring your doubts and you bring your concerns right to him. And then today, if you say, hey, I, I need some prayer about that. Maybe I'm ready to take that step. We'll have some people over on this side of the building that, that they would love to pray with you. They'd love to talk to you about their story with Jesus. I love you guys. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We're mindful in this moment of your movement. And how you are our joy. And I pray we would walk deeper and deeper and deeper with you. That we we would go so deep. That we would lose ourselves in. 
you are. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed week. You're dismissed.